5: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort. Deirdre Bosa has the morning off today and Apple a day as the company closes in on the longest win streak since 03. We're going to break down what comes next for the biggest stock holding in the S&P. Then we'll get a check on tech regulation An interview with D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine this hour. And finally, some churning waters for Netflix. The details behind a new report. That could mean trouble ahead for the streamers and which strategies are
5: best positioned, John. Yeah, Carl, let's uh, let's pick it up where David Faber left off. Apple winning at the Oscars and the exchanges. Apple shares up 11 days in a row now on track, as you mentioned, to top their longest stretch of updates since 2003. The streak adds $407 billion in market value, putting it back near that $3 trillion market cap. I believe it's at about 2.9 this morning. And check out this stat from Compound Capital. Apple now has the largest waiting for an individual company on the S&P in more than 40 years. Now more than 7% of the index. The last company to come close, IBM, in 1985. And you'll recall... Carl, that's uh, the year after the famous 1984 Apple Super Bowl commercial, where the, the woman was throwing the hammer at Big Brother, you know, because oh, yeah. IBM was so big. Now, in the S&P apples, Apple's that big. Yeah, it's so true how the tides turned, uh, John.
3: Bespoke had a great stat this morning. This is only the fourth time that Apple has rallied for 10 days or more. The first such streak since July of 2010. Some argue, John, that really, from a product standpoint, this has not been a year of huge innovation relative to past years, but that what if we are on the cusp, as Katie Huberty argued earlier in the week, of moving from a period of like shipments and ASPs to where they are able to monetize the whole installed user base through a subscription uh, for hardware, that would be a
5: game changer for sure. Indeed, yeah, Carl, some would argue that. I would argue that we're at this point where Apple is taking the next step in vertical integration, which has real implications for what margins are going to be. If you look at what they're doing with the M1 chip and bringing more of that in-house, spreading that across the Mac line and potentially setting up what would be an advantage for them in wearable technology if they're able to innovate on silicon and have lighter weight, more powerful, uh, more power-efficient devices. That's how that would uh, carry forward. But at what point, if ever, do they get another top-line bonanza like the iPhone has delivered for um, you know more than a decade now, Carl? There were people who were asking, "Well, what comes after the iPhone?" There used to be something after the iPhone for Apple to get above a billion, above the, above a trillion-dollar market cap, or above two trillion-dollar market cap, well, maybe they didn't need it, but maybe they need one to get above a $3 trillion market cap, Carl, who who knows?
3: Yeah. Well, market is definitely looking past certainly some of the cautionary headlines we got earlier in the week from the likes of Nikkei. Another warning about potential supply uh, production cuts. We'll keep our eye on that. Our next guest does say, though, it is time to pump the brakes on buying U.S. equities, calling tech and other names, quote, a terrible place to be. Joining us today, Cambria Investment Management co-founder and CIO, Meb Faber. Meb, if 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 you believe we're in a structural downtrend, then the top of this channel, you would argue, is uh, is not a good place to buy.
6: Well, uh, great to be back. I feel like every time you guys have me on here, I'm bearish. Um, so <laughs> I don't wanna be the Debbie Downer of the morning. It's funny you mentioned Apple because we've held Apple in our largest and oldest ETF for nine years and actually just sold it this quarter. So I, I'm feeling a little melancholy about that. Um, but look, there's there's a lot of yellow flashing lights And we've had stock valuations, which have been high for a long time. We've had the yield curve inverting. We have a big one, which is inflation. And a lot of people uh, don't know, but stocks hate inflation. So historically, inflation above 4%, multiples get cut in half. Inflation above seven, it's even worse. And that's where we are. Will it stay? I don't know. You have all the other things going on. The the meme stock craze, retail getting involved, high expectations, these are all yellow flashing lights. But there's one indicator that's really the final boss, right, that, that you really need to, to overcome before you get fully bearish for the red light. And to me, that's the trend. Well, the trend of the market has finally started to roll over um, January of this year. We'll see where we end your uh, month in. Things have been bouncing tech and in the broad market. But to me, yep. that, that puts it from the yellow flashing light to really the yellow, the red flashing light category where um, we call it the, the dark quadrant.
3: Uh, and so what, what changes that view? Is, is it uh, a realization so, that we are at uh, peak commodity pressure or suddenly look, I, Ukraine gets know, resolved? Um,
6: the problem with all the other indicators other than price is that price is the only indicator that can't diverge from itself. So value could keep going up. Stock markets can get more expensive. Trend is really helps keep you from being off the wrong foot. So if you go back 100 years and you put the stock market into the most simplistic category, cheap or expensive, and we can just look at 10-year PE ratios, uptrend or downtrend. The best quadrant to be in is in a cheap uptrend. Makes sense. You do like 17% a year. Amazing. And the worst quadrant to be in is an expensive downtrend, where you do essentially zero. But the second best is an, uh, an expensive uptrend. So that's okay if stocks are expensive and they're going up. You you do okay. The pain comes when you flip from being in sort of that expensive uptrend category to expensive downtrend. And that's when things can get really nasty. And that's where we find ourselves today. Now, we'll, we'll see how <laughs> the next few days, uh, the market keeps going up. That may change. But for now, right. um, it seems like it's more time for caution.
5: Yeah, Matt, that's what I was wondering, because you you laid this out in a post that you put up at the end of February, and you pointed out that something similar to the, um, the let's see, 200-day moving average on the S&P uh, you know, we were we were down below that. But then in the last couple of weeks since March 14th, the, the market has spiked up again. And now, I mean, have we gone from red light back to yellow? And is it just a question of how long we stay at the levels that we are here without going down to, to convince you that we're in a yellow light category now and not red?
6: Yeah, Um we look at things on the monthly time horizon. I don't like watching the markets day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. That's too stressful for me. So uh, ask me again in a few days when the month is in. That helps me separate the noise from sort of the the signal. Um, but the reality is, you don't obviously have to just look at the S and P. There's plenty of other sectors. Like we compare this very similar to the late '90s, early 2000s market cap weight. We think is crazy expensive. You can go hang out in value. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple of years. We think there's been a real regime change um, really since 2020, where value stocks are finally having their moment again. And we think you know, back 2000, 2003, small cap value outperformed the broad market by 150 percentage points. Hmm. And we think you have a similar setup today. So you can hang out in the US stocks, just not market cap weighted. And then, of course, there's other things um, we think are are really useful, like real assets and also foreign markets. But um, happy to get into those. But just anything other than u s. market cap weight, I think is is a good prescription.
5: One more domestic um, for me, and that is, what do you think is the broader meaning to be derived from Apple's huge weighting in the s and p as of right now? I mean, it's expensive, Apple, based on where it's been historically but uh, it, it's a pretty stable company overall. And then you know, we just had Gunjan Banerjee from the, the Journal on yesterday talking about all this action in the pro shares, ultra pro QQQs, all this risk that retail investors are taking on. What does that tell you about what color the light should be on this market?
6: Look, I, I'm a quant, I'm, a, I'm an Apple fanboy, so I'm sad to see it go, but the, the reality is the history of market cap weight. So if you look at the largest stock in any index they go on to underperform that broad index by about 3 percentage points per year for a decade. And that's simply capitalism and, and free markets, right? You, you have a scenario where by the time Apple gets to be an almost $3 trillion company, there's a lot of other companies say, hey, you know, I'd like to make a lot of money too. So this creative destruction happens. And the reality of market cap weights, which you guys just referred to, there is no tether to price. And so, you have stocks as simply a price-based index, as they go up, they get more expensive. Usually that sets the stage for underperformance that happens in sectors, that happens in industries, that happens in countries all around the world. One of the simplest things you can do to outperform over time is simply avoid the largest market cap weights. And so, um, sad to say, but a lot of of the largest market cap weights tend to be the tech names here in 2020. I think if you are looking towards tech, um, emerging markets are a much better opportunity. Taiwan, Korea, and some other places that have uh, really struggled over the past decade.
3: Finally, Meb, I'm wondering what you think explains um, the rise in some meme names uh, the past couple weeks, let's say. Uh, Is that a symptom of some of the dynamics you're talking about?
6: You know, um, the animal spirits of the market are are always hard to know uh, what the underpinnings are. As you guys know, if we were sitting here, a year ago, uh, we had the ETF with the largest uh, concentration in GameStop. And so um, these scenarios uh, play out over time. It's a story as old as time where people get excited about whatever investment it is. I mean, look at energy stocks are booming today. Two years ago, they hit like 2% of the S&P. Back in the 70s, they were almost 30% of the S&P. It's kind of wash repeat and you know, chasing the fads. Uh, it's, it's hard to predict. We often say it's better to be Rip Van Winkle than Nostradamus when it comes to markets and just kind of close your eyes and, and avoid all the craziness. But uh, that's the fun part, too. So I would uh, yep. I would I would avoid it best if you could.
3: Uh, well, the price action has been interesting to watch. Um, good stuff, Matt. Always good to get your take on stuff, especially in the environment we're in right now. Thanks. Talk soon.
6: Cheers.
5: Speaking of growth names showing signs of life in March, including those meme stocks we just mentioned, we will talk about it next. Tech Check is just getting started.
7: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic, because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
8: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones. Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
5: Welcome back. Growth is having a moment. Kathy Woods' Arc Innovation ETF Continuing yesterday's rally, up another 4.5% today. Now, some of its largest holdings are the best performers. Teledoc and Block now up more than 9% for the week. Tesla, Roku, Coinbase, and Zoom also seeing a rally. ARC is still down for the month and the year, but it's been on an upswing since mid-March. And don't forget the meme stocks. Also making a move this month, GameStop and AMC seeing monster gains yesterday. Well, they are losing a bit this morning. GameStop would be breaking a 10 day win streak, Carl. I think in market terms, that is two weeks. <laughs> That's
3: exactly right. Five and five. <laughs> Meanwhile, antitrust regulation is in focus this morning as bills targeting big tech and their market power gain bipartisan momentum in the Senate. Our Julia Borston's here with the latest. Hi, Julia.
0: Well, Carl, the Department of Justice has endorsed an antitrust bill targeting Amazon, Apple, and Google. It aims to forbid large digital platforms from favoring their own products and services. The DOJ giving its first big endorsement of the bipartisan American Innovation and Choice Online Act, which a Senate committee approved in January as similar legislation proceeds in the House. The DOJ saying in a letter to lawmakers, quote, by controlling key arteries, the nation's commerce and communications, such platforms Platforms can exercise outsized market power in our modern economy. Now, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, uh, and others have been lobbying against this bill that would prevent those platforms from listing their own products higher in their search rankings than their rivals' products. They argue that this would prevent them from providing customers with free or low cost services also warning that it could make it harder for platforms to protect users' privacy and protect prevent others from monitoring them. Now, the legislation has not been voted on in either the Senate or the House, but the Biden administration's support could increase its chances of passing. We've reached out to Amazon, Google, Alphabet and, and uh, Apple and Meta on the latest DOJ support. Apple directed us to their statement saying, quote, we are and have always been big believers that competition and innovation drive us all for and we're constantly evolving to make the App Store even better. Apple saying that the App Store creates opportunities for developers to grow their businesses. Now, Google didn't have anything new to add, but they did point us to a blog post from January which warned that this legislation could give a free pass to foreign companies while limiting the companies that are based here. John?
5: Julia, lots of moving parts. Thank you. And it's not just the DOJ taking on the major tech players, Washington, D.C has filed lawsuits against Amazon and, well, a smaller player, Grubhub, uh, saying they wanna protect district residents from what the Attorney General's office deems unfair practices. Joining us now, Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Carl Racine. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thanks for for being with us, first of all. Um, And i actually like to start with Amazon, uh, a a Superior Court Judge dismissed the complaint you had, and and I believe I'm going to simplify it here, but you're arguing the fact that Amazon was telling uh, merchants, you got to give at least a good a price as Amazon as you are elsewhere. You argue that that caused prices to rise elsewhere, and therefore that was bad. Are you going to continue to pursue that line uh, after this dismissal? And, And why is it important if so?
4: Sure. Thanks a lot, John. It's always good to be with you. Um, In a word, yes, the District of Columbia is uh, preparing a motion uh, for reconsideration before the trial judge who dismissed our suit. Let me briefly tell you about it. You summarized it quite well. What Amazon does, both to first-party sellers and to third-party sellers, is that it mandates, after it builds in a good 30 to 40% commission, on the price that those sellers not sell their product anywhere else, including on their own websites for anything lower than the Amazon commission-laden price. And if those sellers seek to do that, Amazon goes back and recoups the difference. What that does, John, is it artificially raises the floor for the prices, and so Amazon is able to mislead us into thinking that they are actually the cheapest provider of the product, when of course the only reason why they're so is because of that contract. They're using their market power to force people who want to get on that 70% electronic mall that Amazon controls to have everybody pay more for those goods and services. We think that's illegal. We think we'll be vindicated in
5: court. Okay, and and to follow up on that, though, it sounds like they're, and this is different from what they were accused of doing early on, you're saying that they're uh, giving merchants a big profit margin opportunity where if they can provide a better experience using Shopify or other direct-to-consumer tactics, they can make a lot lot of money, grow their business, grow their experience to be better than Amazon. It's it's sort of a non-traditional antitrust uh, argument, wouldn't you allow
4: I would agree with you uh, that now, of course, with these extraordinary companies, and I have a lot of respect for the, the technology, the ingenuity of the companies, um, and traditional antitrust law may not have contemplated the ways in which market power can be utilized. But what we do know is that when market power is utilized to force uh, sellers to increase prices, that absolutely stifles innovation and creativity and results in you and me paying higher prices.
3: I wonder what you make of the argument. Some, some argue that um, having uh, as much of a, a cash cow as, as AWS uh, subsidizing a consumer-facing retail business in this case Does that fit any definition of antitrust? And if it does, what does it say about other companies that might have a very large subsidiary that provides a lot of cash and allows them to keep their pricing aggressive?
4: Well, I think that this is a complicated area to be sure. But what we've seen, John, to uh, to be clear, is that Amazon has engaged in these practices for over a decade. Let me take you back to Europe, where Europe Uh, initiate an investigation on the same theory that the D.C. lawsuit is based on. Amazon finally stopped the practice in Europe uh, after about six years. So when Amazon knows that it's violating the law, knows that the investigations are catching up with it, it will change its practice. What we're doing here is seeking to have it change its practices so that sellers can be free to sell their products on any means at any price that they determine. That's the way it should work.
5: Uh, Attorney General, we're we're getting close to the lunch hour. So it's appropriate that I ask you about food delivery. (laughs) You're, uh, You're suing Grubhub for deceptive business practices. You say the company's cramming in hidden fees. So is the solution for these providers to just be transparent and disclose the fees? I thought it was interesting what DoorDash did probably a year plus ago. Giving restaurants different, you know, priced options. If you want the marketing, then you pay this price. If you don't want us to handle, you know, showing your menu and don't want to handle delivering the food, you pay a lower price. And then, you know, to my eye, when I look at DoorDash, if I order something, they give me the breakdown of what the prices are. Is that really the issue, or is there something else?
4: I think you're exactly right. Uh, what consumers and users like you and me want, and certainly DC residents. We want transparency on prices and fees. We don't want any misleading user fees at the end. We don't want any tricks. And we want the gig tech economy companies, as great as they are, to follow the same rules of transparency that applies in the brick and mortar space. I do want to add one other point about these uh, these instant delivery services. Again, I'm a fan. But it's really important to note that workers oftentimes are also taken advantage of, and we have stepped in to enforce the law to protect those delivery drivers and food delivery services people, especially when the company has sought to take their tips or their service fees. Again, when you're exercising generosity and thanks because of a great delivery, that money should go to workers, not the company. We need more transparency in that
0: space.
5: Uh, well, you know, we in, in the news business are also a fan of transparency uh, and glad you came on with us here on Tech Check. Uh, Attorney General of the District of Columbia, Carl Racine, thank you. Thanks, John. Meantime,
3: cloud stocks getting a boost in the rebound. The cloud computing ETF is just a little bit away from going positive for the month after four consecutive months in the red. And check out moves on names like Snowflake, uh, up almost 50% since mid-March. We'll have a lot more after the break as the S&P still hanging on to 4,600 here.
7: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
4: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click click, click, click,
8: click. Writers block
4: release with Canva Magic Write Magical Stress less and save time at canva.com Designed for work
5: Canva Welcome back to Tech Check I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Julia Borston NASDAQ, the outperformer this morning, up a little better than a percent as growth across the board sees buying. Lucid Motors, still 50 percent off its highs of the year, but the top gainer on the index at the moment. Plus, trouble ahead for the streamers. Well, according to some new data, maybe Julia going to break down that story for us in a moment. But first, Manifest News Update with Morgan Brennan. <laughs> Hi, Morgan.
1: Hi, John. Good morning. Well, Moderna's stock price is getting a 3% boost this morning as the FDA authorizes an additional COVID booster for some vulnerable people. In the last hour, the agency said people aged 50 and older, along with people 12 and older who are immunocompromised, can get a fourth Moderna or Pfizer shot. Pfizer shares are also up, but the gain is more modest for that name, up about 1%. Shares of LHC Group are up almost 6% meantime. United Health has a deal to buy the in-home health and hospice care provider for $5.4 billion in cash. Approval is still needed from regulators and LHC shareholders. And the sharp increases we've been seeing for house prices, well, those accelerated in January. A widely followed index shows a national gain of 19.2% year over year. That is slightly Higher from December's increase, Phoenix Phoenix leads the nation with a spike of almost 33%. A hot growth rate for a hot climate. Carl, back to you.
3: Uh, Indeed, Morgan, thanks. Last quarter, slowing subscriber growth at Netflix sent the streamer stocks tumbling. And according to a new report, things could get worse for Netflix and actually the entire streaming industry as a whole. Julia, as John said, has more on that. Julia?
0: Well, Carl, a new report just out this morning from Deloitte points to growing points of pressure on Netflix in particular. Now, of the five countries that Deloitte surveyed, in three of them, consumers say they preferred ad-supported services with no monthly fee, rather than a subscription with no ads. Now, that is good news for those streamers with ads such as Peacock and HBO Max, but it does put more pressure on Netflix To embrace advertising for the first time. Now, another factor that puts pressure on Netflix and others to invest even more in content, a quarter of people in the U.S. have canceled a streaming service and then resubscribed to the same service in the last 12 months as people are chasing new shows and then canceling when they're over. Now, with an average 37% churn rate in the U.S., younger customers are churning at much higher levels than the average, with a 51% churn rate for Gen Z and 52% rate for millennials. And Gen Z respondents in all five countries polled said that video games, not streaming content, are their favorite form of digital entertainment. Deloitte saying, quote, streaming video companies aren't just competing with each other for audiences, they are also competing with different, more social and immersive of entertainment. Now, of course, Netflix did cite competition as a factor in its last earnings as it projected the addition of two and a half million subscribers in the first quarter. That's far below the four million subscribers it added in the first quarter a year earlier. And Netflix shares are down about 27 percent since that last earnings report at the end of July. I'm sorry, January. Guys. Uh, Julia,
5: this is so interesting because you mentioned video games. Sony just out with news of a PlayStation subscription service at the same time as we're seeing all of this churn in uh, the streamers. And so are we moving more into an age of tiers where the the, the preferred strategy is, yes, you've got premium for people who aren't uh, in inflation averse and and don't wanna watch commercials, but increasingly as perhaps more of the population moves into tougher economic times, you just got to have a, a free or ad supported option?
0: Yeah, or lower lower cost ad supported option. That really seems to be what we're seeing from the likes of HBO Max, also from Peacock. I think the gaming piece of, of this is really interesting. Obviously, Netflix has been investing more in games. They've been buying these game studios. And the idea is that having those games as part of their subscription bundle will make it more attractive, will mean that people want to stick around because they're playing those games every single day. They won't cancel when a season of a favorite show uh, is over once they've binged through it. So I think the question is how how much games can make the, that core Netflix service uh, more appealing, or whether we see Netflix move into one of these tiered models, as you mentioned. Maybe the top tier has games and the bottom tier doesn't, um, but it does seem like we're increasingly feeling this pressure uh, on, on Netflix to, to go for something ad-supported so they could offer it for a lot less.
5: Now, speaking of premium content, we were talking about the Oscars yesterday, of course, and, uh, and Will Smith and you know the slap Slapping Chris Rock, um, and you were raising the questions about the pressure on the Academy since yesterday's show. Will Smith did apologize publicly on social media to Chris Rock, and the Academy said that it's launching an investigation. What do you expect to happen next? Any any insight into you know kind of the competing uh, priorities or outcomes that we could see here?
0: Well, interestingly, I want to put those things in order. The Academy said it was was going to have an investigation and to try to figure out what the appropriate next steps would be. Of course, there's this question of whether the Academy would rescind his Oscar. I don't think that's going to happen. I've seen no indication that they would take back his Oscar, but whether there would be some sort of repercussions. But it was after that, that Will Smith issued that apology, apologizing specifically to Chris Rock, which is something that he did not do when he was on stage accepting his award on Sunday night. So I think that was a very well-crafted apology, very thoughtful. Um, and I think that may help address uh, some of the Academy's concerns, or at least help them work with him as they move forward on this. But certainly having that apology is a key step in, in helping the Academy figure out, you know, you know is he contrite? Is he really apologetic here? And now they can figure out uh, what kinds of Next steps they need to take to make sure they're making it clear to their members, to their viewers, to ABC, which broadcasts the show that that kind of behavior is not okay on the air uh, when they're doing this broadcast and that Will Smith is on board with them in trying to move past this.
3: Yeah, a lot of folks going back and actually reading the Code of Conduct of the Academy uh, yesterday, Julia. Thanks, uh, Julia Borston. Speaking of media, where can you find opportunity right now? Our next guest is maintaining his position on Disney, pointing to its lead in streaming and, of course, the pent-up demand for travel. Here to discuss, Mark Asset Management founder and managing partner, Morris Mark Morris. Great to have you back. Good morning.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me, call. I appreciate it.
3: Um, Talk to me about Disney, and I mean, it's got this such a fascinating hybrid quality to it. It worked to a large degree in COVID for one reason. Now people are turning to another reason. Which one are you buying it for?
2: I'm buying it for all of them. I'm buying it for the fact that Disney is the world's leading entertainment company, and it does have a management today that's focused on creating a lot of content for people who want, want to see it, want to watch it, want to attend it because you go to the parks and you're attending it, and it all fits. Uh, And we like it also because more than any other entertainment company, they're able to monetize their IP through travel, uh, through lodging, through cruises. I mean, they're right where I think people want to be today with a tremendous amount of pent-up demand for travel. They're having a a session today in Orlando focusing on all of the the parks and what they offer people.
3: Yeah, the, um, the ability to help finance their streaming costs through this incredible demand for the travel-related stuff and the parks and hotels and everything else, where does that leave a name, like a Netflix, for example, where you don't have that ancillary business?
2: I think when the thing, Netflix is intriguing. The problem with Netflix is valuation. It's really intriguing because you got smart people. They know they're, they're in the entertainment business. And they're not in a streaming business. Streaming is a way of getting entertainment to people. Uh, I think Disney's far ahead because they've got other ways that are working. Uh, But I I think that they're really smart guys. And I think they're doing a lot of intelligent things. And we'll just have to wait and see how it evolves. We have a very small position there because we don't want to forget about it. Uh, But the valuation at this point constrains us.
5: Morris, uh, how much are you thinking about social and reputational risk and the financial implications in this market? Months ago, we saw Netflix dealing with that with Dave Chappelle, and now we see Disney dealing with it with the, the Florida laws. Um, is, has Bob Chapek made a pivot in his CEO leadership style that you're satisfied with, or is it something that concerns you?
2: He sort of, I mean, look, I think I like a lot of things he's done. And I certainly like the fact that he understands the importance of streaming as the primary means of film and game distribution in the future. Uh, and, and the fact that he's acquired all these streaming rights for ESPN. So he, I think he, I think his technological vision is strong. The real question here is, does he have the leadership capability that an entertainment executive needs? And there are very few of these guys who have it. Ted Sarandos does, uh, and I think that that's the that 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 remains to be seen. I'm not saying no at all, because I think he pivoted quickly when he understood the importance of satisfying the needs and this and the sensitivity of Scarlett Johansson. And I think that the key thing that any entertainment CEO has to understand is you've got to keep your talent happy, and talent today. Those obviously includes the performers. They're critical. But it includes the cinematographers, the directors, the animators, the imagineers. And and it's an understanding that the people that produce this product are very conscious of personal rights, individual rights, and civil rights. Hmm. And yet the customers today have a somewhat broader perspective. So this ain't easy. And What's- I think we have to see how he handles it.
5: What's your take? We were just talking about this with Julia Borston on, uh, for Disney specifically, and then perhaps the extent that it differs for other players, the right balance between ad-free subscription, right, and the, the revenue stream and loyalty that that engenders, and then reducing churn through offering low-cost or free ad-supported options, even though it seemed, you know, led by Netflix, like we were supposed to be entering into an era where ads weren't the thing.
2: Now, look, I think that Entertainment requires audience. And the question is, can you get the audience and can you properly monetize it? And if we go back in time, ABC, CBS, and NBC made an absolute and still do make a lot of money. Just providing free entertainment or seemingly free entertainment. And in return for that, you got to watch a lot of commercials. So I think you do what your audience wants as long as the numbers work for you. And I'm, I'm impressed with the fact that Disney is considering adding an ad-supported option. And I, I think that's the way to go. The way to go is do what your customer wants as long as it makes money for you.
3: Hey, finally, Morris, uh, speaking of names that have a, a hybrid quality to them, I know uh, you watch Uber. Uh, you might even own some. We got up another one, one and a half month high here. Uh, reports they might add San Francisco to this list of cities where the taxis are on the platform. Are you buying it for rides or eats or both? Both.
2: I think that the key thing here is that the company does have a lot of cash, a lot of liquidity, and is now starting to generate positive EBITDA on, we think, a fairly consistent basis. I think Dara has done a phenomenal job of picking up or taking over a business with tons of problems, political problems, PR problems, tech problems, endemic epidemic issues that, you know, that nobody has had to confront for 100 years. Uh, And I think he's putting the pieces together. And I thought that the decision to add taxis in New York City tells you a lot. It's good for the taxi industry it's great for Uber, and it shows you that what Uber wants to be and what it is, it's a travel platform. It's a travel platform where I think people are going to be traveling more. It's a commuting platform where I believe if, if the world gets safer uh, in terms of medical uh, situations, it's going to be used more. Uh, and, I, and, then they've, and he's done it carefully. So uh, we like it.
3: Uh, those are some big names. I'm glad we tackled both of them with you, uh, Morris. We love it every
5: time. Thanks for coming on.
2: Carl, thank you You're for smart. having me. And I appreciate it.
5: Thanks. Now, Bitcoin is on pace to end Mark in the green, helping crypto exposed names like Coinbase and MicroStrategy also head higher. We got more after the break. Don't go away. Bitcoin hitting 48k this week and mostly holding on to those gains. Watching this rebound across meme names, growth stocks, and more, Kate Rooney joins us to break down the action. Kate?
8: Hey, John. Bitcoin hitting its highest level since December this week. I'm told that initial spike over the weekend was driven by short covering. So once Bitcoin crossed 45,000, traders needed to buy more crypto to close out some of those positions. But the fact that the market is now holding on to these levels is key. It's really seen as a positive sign of demand and improving sentiment. The trading desk at Genesis tells me they're seeing a more bullish tone lately and the derivatives markets were flashing some signals of that this week. For one, Bitcoin futures open interest hit the highest level so far this year. You've got the fear and greed index. That's another measure of sentiment back around 60 out of 100. That's about double where it was last month. And there's been some signs of more institutional demand after Goldman Sachs made its first OTC trade and Cowan is now getting into these markets. There's also continued support from a new Bitcoin whale, a crypto project called Terra is building up reserves for what we call a stablecoin, or a cryptocurrency pegged to the price of a dollar. The project is buying another one hundred and thirty five million dollars worth of crypto this week. Unlike other stable coins, though, guys, this one is partially backed by Bitcoin instead of dollars or short term debt. The ultimate goal, according to its founder, Do Kwon, is to build up ten billion dollars worth of reserves. We'll see how U.S. regulators feel about that. But either way, these so-called whales adding to their balance sheets and holding for the long term is seen as a bullish sign for crypto markets. And in addition to that demand I mentioned from Terra MicroStrategy this morning saying that it's going to add to its crypto reserves, the CEO this morning saying that it closed a $205 million Bitcoin collateralized loan with Silvergate Bank to buy even more Bitcoin. Carl.
3: Ah, fascinating trying to get positive for the year, along with uh, the currency itself. Okay, thanks. Okay, Rooney. Uh, not much love for some e-commerce names this morning. Credit Suisse does downgrade online luxury reseller The Real Real to neutral on doubts surrounding a quick path to profitability. Then there's Etsy taken down to hold over at Loop. We got the analyst behind that call as we are still holding 4,600. Last close above that level, January 14th. Let's get a gun check on Fortinet. Barclays upgrading the name from equal weight to overweight. Price target goes to 3.95. dollars uh, They are bracing for more cyber threats ahead, arguing that Fortinet's geographic and customer diversity are assets in that environment. For more on the call, you can check out CNBC Pro. Up next, that
5: call on Etsy in a moment. Welcome back. Loop Capital downgrading Etsy this morning from a buy to a hold, dropping the price target to 140, which is uh, just a couple bucks shy of where it's trading at the moment, and saying they expect reduced consumer discretionary spending and -and brick-and-mortar retail rebound to affect the stock. The analyst behind that call, Laura Champagne, joins us now. Laura, uh, this came up on the recent earnings call, right, where Etsy said, yes, uh, inflation is hitting us. Uh, People returning to brick-and-mortar stores uh, is hitting us. People not buying uh, not buying new homes with interest rate rising is going to hurt us because people won't be buying furnishings. But are there things like weddings, right, that, that bolster this stock?
7: So it did come up on the earnings call, but the earnings call was a little over a month ago. And we think things have gotten worse since then on the inflation geopolitical distraction front. Also, we're lapping those STEMI checks, which are not showing up this year Um, but the the shift towards events and away from home um, could potentially pull consumers away from their screens for one thing, but also those home-related buys are pretty big ticket buys. So as the consumer looks to buy a pair of shoes, not a chair, um, that means lower revenues per transaction, which potentially means lower fees for Etsy. So what should Etsy uh, strategically
5: do at a time like this? Should they do m and how can they position themselves for an eventual
7: rebound? They have, have made some strategic acquisitions over the last few years, um, first on the music side, then Elo 7 in Brazil, then Dpop in the UK. Um, they're doing a lot of the right things with, with their search engine performing better because of many, many more inputs from this COVID era when traffic was up. Our call is not that they're making mistakes is that the environment in which they're operating is not so great for their business. Not good for consumer discretionary spending in general and because uh, their advertising is online and we see costs to acquire customers moving higher, they're just seeing outside pressures that there's not much they can do about. Moving higher is an understatement. Uh,
3: reading your note this morning, Laura. I had to do a double take on the kinds of figures at least you're hearing about in digital marketing inflation. Can that be right? Can it be 20 to
7: 40%? It can certainly be 20 to 40% per impression. And, and that's how a lot of this pricing works. If, if there are fewer consumers shopping online and there's inflation in digital advertising. We're hearing it from multiple companies. One of the things that's unique about about me is that I cover wholesalers, I cover brick and mortar, I cover omnichannel, I cover e-commerce, and across that very broad playing field, everyone is telling me 20% plus digital advertising increases. Wow, Laura, thank you. You got it. Laura from Loop Capital.
5: Top gainers on the NASDAQ right now, Lucid, Zoom, and Booking Holdings, we'll be right back. At least one more thing before we go. We have talked about the potential for more antitrust regulation ahead for big tech. But what about buybacks? Are they safe? Apple, Oracle, Microsoft, and IBM have been some of the biggest buyback spenders over the last decade. And Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren had some strong words about the practice this morning on Squawk Box.
0: We have to remember that the executives are the ones who have much more control over this. So putting... Somewhat more restrictions on them on when they can sell makes sense under those circumstances. Also, we'd like to see these companies put more money into R&D. And if the companies really say they don't have any use for the money, then fine. Send it out in dividends to your shareholders. You don't have to do it in buybacks. This is just another distortion because of a tax system that doesn't work.
5: Carl, um, interesting because different types of companies get affected differently by that.
3: Uh, It's true. And B of A actually had some data uh, this morning that uh, buybacks, uh, looking for the lowest weekly level in about 11 months, some questions about how strong uh, buybacks are going to be in Q1, John. Interestingly, you know, you look at the market action today, it really is a cross-sector is a commentary of hope that somehow the Russia-Ukraine situation gets solved. A lot of the winners today, airlines, travel, Airbnb, Boeing, Visa, looking at cross-border uh, travel and spending, John. And the losers, defense, cyber names, Palo Alto's in there, and then ag, Deer mosaic, on the hopes at least that we're not going to wind up with the continued commodity shock we've been suffering from.
5: Yeah, great overview. Uh, My eyebrow is raised uh, because one of the winners is Robinhood up about 24 percent at the moment. Uh, A day late for that meme stock rally, but perhaps not a dollar short. We will see how it ends up, but uh, they are both uh, adding some capabilities for extended trading and probably benefiting a bit from the crypto boost we talked about earlier.
3: I was going to say, John, what do you think about the last couple of weeks? We've got the, the meme names jumping, right? Crypto's gone green for the year. And now
5: Robinhood, it's like uh, last spring Red <laughs> Yeah. Pick your strategy, right? And <laughs> stick to it. Uh, some days you're right. Some days you're wrong. Um, but, hey, we'll, we'll see where it ends up. Yeah. Uh, and as for tomorrow, ADP, as we
3: get closer and closer to the jobs number Friday.
5: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.